Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. We are taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming for another special guest episode today. The guest for today is Joe Goodkin, a Chicago-based singer-songwriter who tours the country performing his one-man folk opera that's an interpretation of Homer's Odyssey. He has performed his Odyssey over 290 times in 38 U.S. states and Canada. Joe's Odyssey is part lecture, part musical performance, and part interactive discussion. The centerpiece of his Odyssey is a 30-minute continuous performance of 24 original songs, performed only with an acoustic guitar and voice, and with lyrics inspired by Odysseus's famous exploits. We talk about how he was able to combine his bachelor's degree in classics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and his years as a professional musician to create something extremely unique, as well as discuss his methodology and his own odyssey towards creating the odyssey. Then we discuss what it's like to be a modern bard and how that has shaped his understanding of not only the Homeric poems, but the context in which ancient audiences would have experienced them. Finally, we converse about his experiences of performing at the NJCL, or National Junior Classical League, which is where we first met, as well as in high schools and at universities, which leads us into a further discussion on our views on the field of classics at large, what it means to be non-traditional classicists, and what we can do and have been able to do to promote classics to a general audience, and why that is important. This episode was recorded when I visited Joe in Chicago so that I could attend my first Cubs game against my beloved Phillies. And true to his Homeric roots, he kindly offered me Zania for the weekend. But before we get to my discussion with Joe Goodkin, I'm going to play one of his songs so that you can get a taste of the Odyssey before we start talking about it. So this is To Hold You and Water by Joe Goodkin, which details the emotions at the end of the Odyssey when Odysseus and Penelope reunite. Just as you call, feeling my way until you made me crawl. Don't think I've given up the fight. Well, I've come and gone, a feather in the night, stared down the dawn. My eyes were burning bright. Giving up on you But I'm still me And you're still you There's nothing more for me to do But hold you But hold you Tried to speak, but you untied my words. My knees went weak. The moment that I heard, I see those sleepless nights on your face. Oh, your face. But you played the game. The moment that I left, you felt the pain. How could I forget? I see the sleepless nights on your face But I'm still me And 
you're still you There's nothing more for me to do But hold you But hold you I'm here in Chicago with Joe Goodkin. We are going to be talking about his odyssey and his love for Homer and his uh, journey to get there. We're also going to be going to a Chicago Cubs and Phillies game, but that's neither here nor there. Go Cubs. (laughs) Go Phillies. (laughs) So Joe, welcome to the show. We're going to start out how I like to start out with most of these type of episodes. I like to learn about people's backgrounds, how they got into classics, because everybody has a different story, especially people who have used classics in what I would consider non-traditional academic ways, because it's always fascinating for listeners out there who love classics or studying classics, but like they don't know if they're going to have that career path that's sure. the traditional model. So it's like something they, they can like think about, maybe expand their creative horizon, that sort of stuff. So if you would, could you tell me how you got into classics and I guess more specifically how you got into Homer, the Odyssey, the Iliad, the hymns? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. This is, it's a real honor and I'm excited to talk with you about all that. So I, uh, I guess I call myself kind of an accidental classicist. I wasn't one of these high school kids that had Latin or, or JCI unfortunately. But I went to college at Wisconsin-Madison and my freshman year when I had to take a language, I took a chance and signed up for Greek 101, kind of on a whim, kind of because I'd seen a couple Greek words in a book in high school that were kind of mysterious and kind of magic. And I wanted to learn what they meant, how to read them. By my second semester, I was taking Greek 102 and, and classical mythology with uh, Barry Powell. 
and classical archaeology. And I found myself a classics major at the end of my first year. So following college, uh, where I read quite a bit of Greek and really did probably the most with the Greek language of any of the, the different aspects of the field, I had the notion to try to combine that classics degree with a background in music. I played guitar and written songs since I was in high school and before. And what tumbled out of me was a 30-minute one-man interpretation of Homer's Odyssey through 24 songs. That, 30 minutes. 30 minutes, yes. Quote, unquote, the whole story. That I've been doing on and off, but mostly on for the last eight, nine years at colleges, universities, high schools in general, almost 300 times now in 38 U.S. states as of this taping. And it, this thing that started on a whim has sort of become a big part of my life and my career. And it's enabled me to stay in both classics and music in a way uh, that I think is unique. So what was the process in going about that? Like, was it something that just organically happened? Was it something that like you didn't anticipate doing the entire Odyssey like, what was your methodology? Did you just be like, all right, I want to make some songs that are Homeric inspired. And then it turned into, let's do a song about like every individual book or every individual tale. Was it like, how long did it take you to come up with the routine, so to speak, that you have now? Yeah. Which, I mean, I'm sure it's not completely finished. You make changes all the time as an artist. But yeah. like, how did that, like the initial, the methodology happen initially? Well, I, ac I actually have my writing book with all my work. And it started out with a prompt that I wrote myself on this a page uh, that just said, write a 24 song adaptation of the Odyssey in modern song. And that was it. So one song per each book. I think that's what I had in mind at mm -hmm. first, uh, or at least that conceit, that framework, trying to honor the mm -hmm. 24 books, the traditional 24 books. It didn't turn out that I wrote one song per book. Some books I condensed, you know. Some are just harder to do. Yeah. yeah. And, and as I got... As I got a clearer picture of how I wanted to tell the story, mm -hmm. some books lent themselves to more than one song because there was the type of character interaction that I was interested in as a writer. Some books that were more highly narrative or less character driven were not as interesting to me as a writer. So I had to find workarounds for those or I had to combine a couple into one. But I wanted to stick with the 24 just as a matter of symmetry and honoring the tradition. So I basically lay out four or five different translations of the Odyssey along with the Greek and went through and read the translations until I found something I thought I could write a song about in the way that I write. And it was cool because it was an exercise in comparative translation in some sense, but also it gave me a window into how many different ways you could tell the same story because the translations are, you know, markedly mm -hmm. different, I think. So yeah, that was my inspiration for it and kind of my process. It took me the better part of two months to do most of it. Mm. And then it took me about eight years of experimenting to finish the last 10% of it. So, or at least that's what I like to say. What translations did you use and like, which ones are your favorites? Mm -hmm. Which, which one spoke to you more, I guess? At the time I used Fagel's Fitzgerald Lombardo. The prose translation in the lobe, as, oh, as well as the as well as the Greek. There might have been one more in there too, but uh, this is before Emily Wilson's translation came out. Mm -hmm. Clearly, before like, Barry Powell's translation. I'm trying to think if there was one other one. Yeah, but those were the main ones. Has has those new recent translations? Have you read them and like have been inspired to change lyrics at all? No, no. not not really. They've changed the way I've like framed the stories to the audience, mm -hmm. and that they've just given me more to think about, like any translation mm -hmm. does. But as far as changing the raw material of what I perform. It hasn't. I wrote it pretty broadly. And like the things I love about Emily Wilson's translation 
are that she synthesizes some of the things that I liked desperately in some of the other translations. So she has kind of the poetry of like the Lombardo version. And now it didn't really have me change the actual artifact, so to speak. So what was it about Homer that drew you to Homer <laughs> and, and the Odyssey in particular? You do the Iliad now, and we'll get to that later. Yeah, but like, yeah. it was mainly the Odyssey for the longest time. So what was it about that specific text and that specific type of literature that yeah. really drew you to it as opposed to doing like a a song of i don't know like what other uh the aeneid yeah or something. yeah yeah um which is a copy of homer but yeah i was gonna say <laughs> virgil beat me to it yeah i think the experience of reading homer in greek was like life-changing for me i, I remember very clearly although i did the, the iliad first um the first time i felt like i understood what was happening in the homeric poems like in greek and it was like this incredible emotional connection to humanity and a tradition. You know, it was almost like a time machine that I could see back to people 3,000 years ago or more. So, and that was, I loved all the other stuff I studied, but I didn't have kind of that emotional mm -hmm. connection in the same way. Mm -hmm. And as far as starting out with the Odyssey over the Iliad, I got the Odyssey in three separate classes in college, a language class, a Greek class, a literature and translation class, and then actually like in a comparative literature class, mm -hmm. which was not only studying the Odyssey, but studying other works, both literary texts and films and poems that were also inspired by the Odyssey. So I had this exposure to how rich the subject material was mm -hmm. and how relevant it was. And I think as a narrative, as a story, the Odyssey is a little easier for modern audiences to step right into and feel comfortable with. And it was easier, at least for me to tell. So that's... I'm glad I did. Now that I'm starting to do some work on the Iliad, I'm glad I did the Odyssey as a younger person and I waited to do the Iliad till I was a little bit older and had some more perspective. Mm -hmm. A lot of things in art and life are just a little bit of luck and then a lot of mm -hmm. hard work. So I think I stumbled into the perfect story for me and ran with it. Yeah. Being a, a layman in this sort of thing, I feel like the Odyssey definitely lends itself, at least in my perspective, more to music. I yeah. feel like the Iliad would be a little harder to yeah. capture all of the different energies that's yeah. going on. Uh, whereas the Odyssey is kind of like nostalgic folk tale. Yeah. Kind of like, I mean, there's some agony in it. Yeah. Like there well, there's a lot of agony yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, and some, but yeah. 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 Well, like, yeah. on top of that, it's a story about someone who tells stories. Mm -hmm. That interested me as well, that it's a text that is a, is a story. Yeah, it is. And that, you know, again, modern, I guess that's a catch-all word for yeah. it. You know, Odysseus himself is kind of like this bard going around he is a bard going around telling stories in mm -hmm. some way. And uh, as a creator, it's very easy to identify with that character mm -hmm. when you're doing the same thing sort of that mm -hmm. he's doing. So I think that was part of it as well. And the Iliad is just – the Iliad is heavy, man. <laughs> it's just a much heavier, darker story for me in some ways. So you wrote it. It took you two months, you said, mm -hmm. or so. Mm -hmm. How long until you actually started performing? Like how did that process go about? Was it a rough – like – so I mean, get booed on stage. No. No, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, when you read about what some of the bards in Homer went through, I, <laughs> yeah. nothing like that. Nobody was throwing, uh, you know, ox hooves at me or anything that I remember. Um, I guess, I guess to reframe that better, like how receptive yeah. was it at first? Yeah. Um, like yeah. were people that interested? And uh, I guess I should back up. I actually listened to his performance last summer at Miami, Ohio University at the NJCL mm -hmm. and it was, it was fascinating. I didn't know what to expect as most people probably are like, yeah, it's like a musical performance of the Odyssey right, in like right. 30 minutes. Like, yeah. okay, how's this going to go? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to give any spoilers. You can definitely listen to a CD, yeah. but it was... It surpassed my expectations, 
The music was great. Yeah. The lyrics were great. Yeah. And I feel like that would have taken more than two months to put together. Well, and I guess I want to see like what the process was like it, at the first. And, like, to, get it yeah. to get it up and running. To get it up and running. I mean, it's interesting because actually some of what you just said there is a real strength of it, which mm-hmm. is like if people just hear what it is mm-hmm. and it's not like anything else they come in, into contact with, you kind of already, in my opinion, you have a leg up because you're going to surprise them no matter what you do um, in some sense. Uh, they know they're going to something that's different. So I basically did it for the first time in my parents' living room for a very closely curated group of kind guests. Uh, and when I first did it, maybe three weeks after I finished writing it, it was just an exercise in remembering all of it and getting through it. Like there's no, there was almost no art to it. It was just an endurance exercise, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to play and sing for 30 minutes, 32 minutes straight, the first time you do that, it's really hard. It's mm-hmm. hard to remember everything. It's it's hard to pace yourself physically to get through it all and have your voice and all that. So after that, my first kind of public performance was for a high school English class at my alma mater uh, in a suburb here in Chicago. And for the first three or four years, I performed almost exclusively in high schools and high school English classes, not so much uh, college audiences. This was like early 20s, like right out of college? Yeah, Yeah. much closer to Telemachus's age than than Odysseus's age like I am now. Uh, So I think like some of the novelty of it Mm -hmm. gave me, I don't want to say a pass, but it almost didn't matter how good I was at it because of how different it was. And, Mm -hmm. you know, especially if you think of somebody just coming into a high school English classroom and singing for 30 minutes, it almost doesn't matter how they do it as long as they just do it because it's Mm -hmm. entirely different from a kid's experience, you know, in the classroom. I guess that's kind of, we should reiterate. Yeah. So if you like, it's 30 minutes and if you're going to it and trying to learn the Odyssey, it's not that it's less about the story of the Odyssey and more about the storytelling of the emotions of the Odyssey. Yeah, exactly. So like, it's, it's not someone teaching you the Odyssey and it's not someone just singing to you. It's a a combination of both. So you you should probably have some familiarity with the Odyssey going into it. Which I found that most people do. And, you know, when you start talking about the main aspects of the story, people recognize them. Mm -hmm. They're so, you know, baked in our popular storytelling and Mm -hmm. our popular culture that even if they don't think they know the story, they know the main characters, Mm -hmm. they know kind of the hot points of the story. Again, that can be a strength because I hope my performance can inspire them maybe to go back and read Mm -hmm. it, actually read it Mm -hmm. uh, with this new window beforehand into the character's emotions. But you Um, you also do a good job of, I remember in your program that you gave to everyone, and this is like a synopsis of like, this happened in this book, a few sentences. Yep. These are the lyrics. I do this is what I'm missing. Yeah. yeah. So like if you don't remember it, what happened in book 16, yeah. you're not going to be completely you'll be, lost. You'll be okay. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't, mean to, didn't mean to get off the no, track there. That, but like, that, that's, that's, that's great. Yeah. And that, that's 100% true. But when I was less sure about that, yeah. having an audience of people who were reading the story like in a high school English class mm-hmm. was great because then I don't need to do any narrative setup. You know, I can immediately bypass the narrative part and go to the emotional mm-hmm. arc, or which to me is the way I wanted to tell the story and what I was interested in and what I thought would help modern audiences get past just the narrative and into the actual story and relate to the characters. Mm-hmm. So I did it from about 2002 to 2005 or so, probably 10, 12 times a year, mostly in high schools with like my alma mater. I went up to Wisconsin and played it. A couple of universities took a chance on me. Mm-hmm. And then I actually stopped doing it and didn't do it at all for almost six years, 2005 to 2010, 11. Why? You were still making music at that point. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was at a dead end with it creatively. And I thought it was because I was just done doing it and I'd said everything I could. But what I realized after the fact was I just wasn't doing it well enough. And I wasn't 
tapping into the full potential of it. Not necessarily, I'd written it, I think, pretty well. I just wasn't at the level performing it or framing it where I was confident enough to play it the way I could Mm -hmm. and really exploit all the different things about it. I was much more concerned with the weaknesses of it than like compensating (laughs) for the, yeah, right. Compensating for the weaknesses of it than I was exploiting the strengths of it. And that was really hard, especially as I wanted desperately to try to bring it into colleges, both for the audiences and for my own validity as a, somebody who was into the material. And I wasn't ready to do that. And the five or six years I took away, I guess it's cheesy, but I, you know, I went out on the sea myself and had some other life things happen. And mm-hmm. I came back to it a more weathered person and a more confident person, also a more appreciative person of what I had created and the potential for it. And it was at that point that I started pursuing doing it more in college and university settings as well as high schools. If only and, you would have taken 10 or 20 years away, then it would have fit right in. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, yeah, right. But yeah, right. Well played, right? So during that time that you're away, yeah. what changes when you came back to it? Like what significant changes did you make to it? I'm sure you had a different perspective. The funniest um, thing is I still use the same lyric presentation that I did before I took the break. Just the basically. way you perform it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I rearranged it a little bit. Like mm-hmm. I... There were certain places where I repeated certain verses or repeated certain songs, maybe mm-hmm. places I hadn't, but it was much more about the reperformance of it and really eye-opening into how much power you have to do the same thing differently, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think is enlightening into what an oral tradition is anyway. No two performances are the same, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's really empowering to realize that. And it's also kind of humbling when you realize that so much of what a performance means is completely out of your control as a mm-hmm. performer. It's dependent on, well, most importantly, the audience, but also the space in which you're doing it. So starting to understand bigger concepts like that and bringing them to the performance, both in my approach and also in showing the audience, giving the audience a window into the different ways in which these echoed the Homeric tradition mm-hmm. and the oral tradition was a, a really empowering thing especially as I started to make the crossover into more colleges and universities and real academic settings. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So when you were putting these together, I guess this could be two questions. So when you were putting the songs together, was there a favorite song? Is there a favorite book, a favorite story that you preferred? And if so, is that still your favorite? Is there a different one one now? Me personally, I really felt the emotion in the... uh, I forget the name of the song. I should have the list of the songs yeah. up now, but it's the, like, I'm coming back, the reunion scene. You have the one with Telemachus, like, yeah. he's coming back. Uh, right. uh, and then you have the one at the end. I You could definitely feel the emotion in the air. Oh, like, Father? Yeah, that Oh, one? Father. Yeah. Yes, that yeah. one, that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, at the time, I think I related to the Telemachus songs and the adventure of it a little more because I was younger. But I wrote it broadly enough that when I came back to it and as I continue to become an older person, I tend to resonate a little bit more with the... I'm always a sucker for the Argus scene because I'm a dog person and clearly you are too. And actually, I start out my presentation generally by talking about the scene in Book 8 when Odysseus is weeping at the songs of the bard of Demodocus. So I think I reacted to these intensely emotional parts of the story Mm -hmm. that I could relate to as a modern person. And I still do. They change from, you know, year to year in performance to performance, but... Another one that I really liked was the Who Am I song. Oh, That's it, yeah. the, the invocation. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, every, if you're going to write an epic, you have to have an invocation mm-hmm. and you need a topic sentence. And I guess another part of the Odyssey that fascinated me from the very beginning is the playfulness around identity and the importance of identity mm-hmm. of everybody, but especially Odysseus. And so when it came time to 
to figure out how I was going to approach the story, I thought it was natural to begin from a with a question of identity and what it means and why it's important and best man. Yeah, right, exactly. And that was, you know, that's my way of trying to honor the tradition of having an invocation up front. So you got into colleges and you were performing at colleges mm-hmm. and then you started doing it at the NJCL as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How was the reception compared to say like high school versus collegiate kids? How was that at first? How do you see are more and more, I don't want to say attached to yeah. it, but are, like relate to it more? Yeah. Like, is there a certain age group that can kind of, or is it just kind of all over the place? You know, it's really good insight into how you relate to texts at different ages based mm-hmm. on where you are in, in the world. A 14-year-old has a completely different frame of reference for the story than say a 19-year-old and then also say a professor that's been in the field for 20 or 30 mm-hmm. years, but is still into the material. And those audiences bring a completely different spin and insight into the material than for me during talkbacks and as I watch them react to it. Also, as a performer and as somebody who comes into a classroom setting, when you step into like a freshman English class or high school, you have an immediate authority that when you step into a college situation, you have a little bit less of, Mm -hmm. both because the students are a little more sophisticated in their thinking and also because if you're in a college, there are people in the room, at least in my case, that know a lot more about mm-hmm. the subject material than I do. So it's navigating those dynamics, which mm-hmm. is, again, if you're comfortable with yourself and your position, is actually really kind of interesting and empowering mm-hmm. because you can watch the audience kind of create these different meanings for your performance for you. And they're all valid and they're all interesting. And sometimes you feel like you're a little more authoritative and sometimes you feel like you're a little less authoritative. And if you're a lifelong learner and interested in the subject matter, it, you know, you're getting your, an education yourself, even as you're providing one. So when I was at the NJACL last July, when, when I saw your performance, I was struck by like, I overheard a bunch of younger kids talking about like they were on the way to go see it and they were excited. They had seen it the last few years and they're yeah. excited to see how it is now. Yeah. I guess so not only does it change every year, but like that kind of gives you a perspective on being a Homeric bard in general. Because 100%. like, I mean, like I'm sure like in the ancient times, you got excited to go hear the bard tell a story that you had already heard What's it going to be tonight? Yeah. yeah like yeah, how right. is it going to change? Yeah. Not necessarily the words, but just like the experience. Yeah. Like what you feel when you see it is yeah. going to be different because for these kids, the NJCL, they're like teenagers when they heard it when they're 14 when they heard it when they're 15 when they heard it when they're 16 it it resonates at a completely different level that's exactly it and it's funny to me because people have seen it say two years apart sometimes even just one year Mm -hmm. apart and say wow it was really different like what did you change and as a performer i'm aware of certain subtleties that change but really Mm -hmm. to me i'm still performing the exact same thing that i wrote 18 years ago so what's different about it the audience. Yeah, right. The space, the experience. Yeah. You know, maybe the first time they saw it, they were freshmen, the first time at NJCL convention. Mm-hmm. So there's all this excitement, exuberance. Everything is strange, right? Mm-hmm. Second time they see it, they're bringing in expectations. They're also at a different place in Maturity their comfort was, level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's true of, of every audience mm-hmm. in some sense. The NJCL audiences are just a kind of a special type of audience for what I do because they're perfect for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have the excitement level around the uh, the subject material. They have the knowledge around the subject mm-hmm. material. So I enjoy the NJCL performances so much and the whole mm-hmm. culture around the environment, mm-hmm. which you saw for the first mm-hmm. time. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, for I, I was we, not like that in high school. No, I didn't know anything about that. Well, right, so, yeah. right. Kind of jealous in yeah. a way, you know. Um, I didn't learn classics until I was in college. Right. Yeah. So you have the same thing. Yeah, so I, you said it actually better than I did, which is, you know, every time they come back, they bring a different frame of reference because they're different. And I, I mean, I'm different too. Hopefully I've gotten better at performing it. 
but maybe also I'm having a better day as a performer than I did the year before or a worse day or the room is a more interesting sounding room than it was the last time or there's more people there or there's fewer people there. Sometimes a performance uh, to like 10 people is way more memorable than if you're one of 150 in the audience and it's much more anonymous. If you feel like you're one of the only people in the room having this experience. So those are the types of things that they make each time new for the performer too, as long as you embrace them. Mm -hmm. And that's what keeps it interesting after almost 300 performances. So we kind of touched upon this a little bit. We talked about like being a Homeric bard and like we had Demodocus and the Odyssey and then, you know, Odysseus is kind of like a Mm -hmm. meta Homeric bard. Right. And then like, so the audience is a huge part of that. So since you've done this and you're kind of a modern Homeric bard in a sense, a little bit more into the music, I think, than, yeah. the, than the actual storytelling. Right. But has it changed your perspective on like what it meant to be a Homeric bard or yeah. Homer in general? Not necessarily gotten a greater appreciation because I'm sure that has come too. But like, right. what have you learned from it that like you didn't insight know as, uh, into yeah, it. as yeah. you like reading yeah. Homer in Greek? You right. didn't realize. Have you seen like intricacies in yeah. the texts? Or just in general, anything yeah. you can talk about, like your well, maturation process. I, I, I suspect, and this is, you have no way of proving this stuff, <laughs> despite what anybody tells you. I suspect that all these hints in the text that we see of the bard elevating himself to the level of hero, you know, Odysseus, or equating the two, mm-hmm. were v- based in very real emotional experiences of being on the road traveling telling stories like the level at which i identify with some of the things that odysseus goes through i can see how a bard would feel very comfortable representing those emotions in a hero more so than say like achilles Mm -hmm. in the iliad i think there was a real sense of understanding between a bard who would tell that story and the hero Mm -hmm. of the odyssey and i guess I, i knew that intellectually because i'd had professors point out all these points of comparison and Mm -hmm. similarity. But until you've actually gone out and done this thing, that is both what the people who created the story did as well as the hero did, go around, feel all the disconnection of traveling, feel the desire to be home while still being fascinated with the world around you as you're doing these performances. I have a much deeper understanding and appreciation and admiration of that than you would get just reading the text mm-hmm. on the paper. That's been the level of insight to me that's that's poignant and touching. And I try to tell the audience about it as much as I can. And it's, again, it just feels as if I'm looking back in time. You know, I'm seeing humanity, this thing that's important to humanity and a part of humanity. And what I do with audiences in the year 2019 looks exactly the same as what they were doing 3,000 years ago. Like that's an incredible amount of continuity in human experience to me and around the same Mm -hmm. story. So those are the types of things that come out with actually doing the storytelling, even if it looks a little different in music, you know, from Mm -hmm. what a narrative bard would do. Have you ever performed in the original Greek? No. You haven't? If you had performed in the original Greek, my next question would have been like, how connected can you get even deeper level of connecting the Homeric bard? Well, see, that's what's interesting. I think there's an illusion of being more connected by speaking the text in a sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas what I'm interested in is connecting with the audience, the material connecting with the audience in the same way that it would have yeah. back then. And you have to... So more uh, about the audience and less about you. At that yeah, point. exactly. And, gotcha. and also a modern audience, like singing in the ancient Greek would be cool, interesting, fun, yeah. I guess. Hard. Yeah. So, <laughs> some people do it. You know, the people that do recitations mm-hmm. in, in, with their own rules for how they're going to do it. 
but a modern but audience sitting up there with a guitar like you yeah and, and, emotion and, behind right. it. a lot of people forget that this was meant to be with like music exactly yeah. some sort of rhythm some all, sort of all ancient poetry had e- music behind it. exactly you know a modern audience to the ancient greek is not going to react in a way that's similar to the way the ancient audience so mm. i'm fascinated by that stuff and the people that you see that do some of these reconstructions and insight into ancient music and all that stuff mm-hmm. is fascinating to me it's just not it's just different than what I think I'm trying to do with telling the story and relating to the audience, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. So h- how long have you been doing the Odyssey again? You said 2002, right? Yeah. In March would have been the 17th anniversary of my first performance of it. So, so it's older than my audiences now sometimes. And you just started doing Iliad? Are you doing performances live for the Iliad? Or are you still working on it? It's in development right it's still now. still in development? I, for many years, I fought the idea of doing anything with the Iliad because the story scared me and I didn't understand it, I guess, in the same level that I felt like I understood the Odyssey. But in the last maybe 16 months, I had an epiphany around a way I thought I could tell the story mm-hmm. that was similar to what I did with the Odyssey, but maybe elaborated on it or changed it up just a little bit to where I felt comfortable with it. And so the last 16 months, I've been writing some music and I've been writing some words about it. And I have a draft version of it. I've done some of the songs in classes this spring, uh, three or four kind of workshop performances. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to work with people to help me figure out how I want to present it. It's going to look different than the Odyssey performance. It's longer. It involves actual talking and actual narrative framework. But the idea behind the songs is very similar. The idea is the songs will present the characters in the story from a first-person point of view, what they're going through in the story. It's a terrifying story, and it is full of characters to me that are much harder to write, from whose perspectives are harder to write from than, I don't know if that was grammatically (laughs) correct. Let's frame it the other way. I had an easier time writing about the characters in the Odyssey than I did in the Iliad. They're yeah, more said, relatable. You said took you two months. Yeah. It's like, what's it? You said 16 months so far and still working on it. Well, so I guess that's the... the inter- yeah, yeah. The interesting thing about that is the music. I wrote the music for this Iliad thing in four weeks. <laughs> that came out of me. Once I had a picture... It's just the words now. It's just the... Well, no. The words and the music. Oh. Like all the songs. It's the narrative. It's how to frame the songs. That's gotcha. how I'm struggling with. Yeah. And I guess I did a lot of reading and thinking and talking to people for the 10 months before I wrote the music and the, the songs. So... There was a lot of coming up with my window in. And then once I had a window in, the stuff tumbled out of me pretty quickly in terms of the music and the lyrics. It's just a, you know, I know I keep saying it. It's a heavier story than the Odyssey in a lot of ways. You mentioned like framing the songs. Yeah. Like, uh, do you want to talk about the methodology and the creative process behind that? So like yeah. if you got the words and you yeah. have the music, what is your process? When do you feel like, oh, this is yeah. great? Is it the way you speak it? Is it the way you sing it? Is it demeanor on the stage? Yeah. Like, what, what, like yeah. how do you get to that point where you're comfortable with it? If there's a point. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right, right. The Odyssey is interesting because it's one 30-minute performance. Mm-hmm. It's basically one framework. It's what I do before and what I do after mm-hmm. it. You know, So getting comfortable with that for me was just figuring out how I wanted to talk to the audience before it and then figuring out how I wanted to talk to the audience after it. What I do in the middle with the performing is difficult because it's 30 minutes of playing. But the framework and the talking and how I'm guiding the audience to listen to the songs is easy because I just have what I tell them before and then mm-hmm. what I tell them after. With this Iliad piece, what I'm doing is baking in some narrative guidance between each song. So it's not a continuous performance of music. It is a storytelling piece as well as a music piece because I felt that was the best way to honor the story. I didn't want... You brought up about how you know what I do with the Odyssey is not narrative. I wanted this thing with the Iliad to be narrative. I wanted mm-hmm. to tell the audience everything it needs to know to understand the characters and the story. 
in our time. So I'm having to write a lot more between the songs and actually script it and turn it into something that's more of a hybrid kind of musical storytelling piece. So you're like a omniscient narrator with music. Yeah, exactly. You're like Morgan Freeman, but playing the guitar. I look exactly like him. Yeah. Um, (laughs) No, it's uh, and I'm still part of what I'm. I'm starting to think about is how I want that to really look in a performance and what kind of space I can do it in. So it's a much longer process, I think, than the Odyssey, partially because I'm not as comfortable with the story, and partially because I'm aware that now that I've become the Odyssey guy for the last 17 years. When I tell people I have this Iliad thing, it will be much easier for me to bring it to people right off the bat. I'm not going to have to build up this reputation and this, you know, mm-hmm. infrastructure of, of booking. If I tell people, hey, I did the Odyssey, it went, seemed to go over pretty well. Do you want the Iliad? That's going to happen a lot quicker on this one. Working um, your way through the Trojan War cycle. That, exactly. Working your way backwards, kind of, in a sense. Interesting though, right? Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. that was the one I felt comfortable with the one afterwards before mm-hmm. the, yeah, that's exactly right. So... Your lyrics, I guess back to not mm-hmm. just the Iliad, but mm-hmm. in general, mm-hmm. your lyrics, do they follow a specific, like, are they in dactylic hexameter mm-hmm. or are they, they are? No. Oh, they're not. <laughs> no, okay. I, was, I, was I was like, I was, I was nodding like, uh, oh, okay. mm. <laughs> no, I, I, I think I thought about that. As I was starting to write the Odyssey, um, it's a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> oh my God. Well, and, and again, it's like kind of shoehorning this, like, yeah. like it doesn't, mean the same thing to us as it would have to them. Like dactylic hexameter in that way is not a thing for us. Like the ear wouldn't recognize it as such. I mean, it was... Did you follow on a specific rhyming scheme? No, I think it oh. follows kind of traditional pop music rhyming okay. schemes, okay. you know. It's not a stress thing. You know, it's not a poetic meter. They're songwriting lyric conventions. So I don't know what you'd call those in terms of a rhyme scheme. But yeah. They follow the music is the thing. They're guided to me much more by the rhythm of the music than anything else. Mm. I thought about, again, I thought about trying to, to create these frameworks that were more connected to the original, mm-hmm. you know, ancient source. But they just felt too constructed to me. And you're doing it more mm-hmm. to show off than you're yeah. doing it to generate a, a, yeah. a response. So don't take offense to this. Okay, good. But <laughs> <laughs> there were some songs that I remember. I felt like the lyrics were just completely... It, it didn't matter. Yeah. It was more about the music and the yeah. emotions brought by the yeah. music. Where like I was listening to the lyrics, it's like, okay, I know the familiarity with this book. I right. can't remember what yeah, the songs right. they were. You gave me a description to yeah. jog my memory. And then your lyrics were just kind of... More about you coming together with the Emotion. output yeah. than it yeah. was necessarily for the audience. I was like, okay, these lyrics, they're cool. They're good. Like they're broad yeah. though. They're, they're broad. broad. Yeah. yeah. I was more into like, and then this isn't all the songs and yeah. you might have been meant that way. I don't know, yeah. but it was definitely more about the music yeah. than the lyrics. So I feel like that's in a way speaks to a lot of modern music in a sense where yeah. it is more about the beats and the emotion brought about by the beats yeah. and the actual words, right. not trying to be an old person on the lawn shaking his fist. Cause yeah. I do like, you can go there's on. both. Yeah, <laughs> there's both. And then there are some lyrics that I was like, Oh, how we well, did that. And I wish I would remember which. No, that songs, that's, but. I think two things in response to that. One is that, I was interested in writing it broadly that enough that the lyrics didn't have to, they weren't so specific that you could only tie them to these characters in this yeah. book. You could tie them to the same emotional experiences of any, of anybody, mm-hmm. basically, as long as you got the emotional core of what the characters mm-hmm. were going through. You know, we see Penelope struggling through what happens when kids are growing up and struggling to let go of Telemachus so he, he can grow up, mm-hmm. worrying about his safety, but knowing he needs to go out and, and discover himself and become, mm-hmm. you know, a grown up. But that could be about any mother going yeah. through that. So I want to write the lyrics broadly enough where, yes, if you're told, if you know, if you think this is the story of the Odyssey, 
then it's the story of Telemachus and Penelope. But also you're thinking about yourself and your own mother or, mm-hmm. or you know, similar emotional experiences yeah. to help you get into the, the story. So that's the first thing. The second thing is – You didn't have to put all the different epithets in there to, to r- distinguish who r- everyone right, was. Right, exactly. Well, there's not a proper name in the whole thing yeah. so on purpose. Yeah, this, you're right. You're this, right now that I think the, about it. Nothing rhymes with Telemachus. Uh, <laughs> the second thing is is that, you know, you brought up about how this poetry was accompanied by music and rhythm. That is a tool that you can use just on its own and should be used on its own. And it changes, you know, it changes how you take in the words, the music behind it, right? So as a performer, I think if I'm going to play for 30 minutes, I have to use everything I have up here to get emotion and to connect with the audience. And some of that may just be the emotional timbre of the music. That's fine. If it generates the feeling I want or if it generates the response I want, it doesn't need words, you know? And there's, like you said, there's plenty of pop music that is... It's not about the words at all. And hip hop in <laughs> you, general. Well, yeah. Or uh, just like, yeah. you know, do a diddy, diddy, dum, diddy, do. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, what, like. It's about when you're listening to it, yes. where you get transported to. Exactly. And, yeah. it, and you know, I, I say this before every performance, but music acts on your brain in a different place from words. It generates its meaning from a different spot in mm-hmm. your brain, you know, in some sense. It's just energy acting on your eardrums. It doesn't have meaning, mm-hmm. like in the sense that language has meaning. So I think that's a powerful, you know, that's a strength of including music with it and allowing music to just speak for itself that the text doesn't have. You read the text, you don't get that. So mm-hmm. you might as well lean on it and use it to its fullest capabilities. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier with like, you know, the 14, 15, 16-year-old kids. Yeah. They get something different out of it every time they hear it. Absolutely. I'm sure like older people as well, but especially in the younger age because they're drastically changing. And every time they hear it, it's going to transport them to somewhere else. Yeah. And that's, um, that is true of, of audiences of all ages. Mm-hmm. You know, an audience member that is of the age where they have a child mm-hmm. is going to have a different emotional response to the framing of a parent and a child. Yeah. Uh, and being the child. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 100%. So you've gone into a lot of high schools, you've gone into a lot of colleges, mm-hmm. classics departments, classics associations like NJCL. Yeah. What is your overall like feeling? Like, what is it like? How do you see classics? Yeah. What is the like current state the current of, state of classics? Yeah. Like completely sunny and wonderful. No. no. <laughs> well, <laughs> from an outsider's perspective, yeah, obviously. I get a really interesting kind of cross section of it, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have this. There's this utopian kind of NJCL experience Mm -hmm. where you go in and everybody is there because they're into classics Mm -hmm. and classics is like built this like social bubble in a sense the social world again it's kind of utopia like it's paradise if you're in and and you feel great about it because you see all these kids who are into into the latin language and they're into the taking tests around it and they're into competitions and it blew me away it's amazing right i was not like that at all in high school right and and it's it's really encouraging if you're into the material because you can see the energy and the enthusiasm and not just and the depth of the connection, how good they are at a lot of this. It's just like amazing, right? Not, not to sidetrack you. Yeah. I left there like super refreshed. Yeah. Like I had hit a – like last summer I had hit yeah. like a wall with yeah. my podcast. Yeah. I was doing the narrative. I just kind of like hit yeah. just a mental wall. And I started doing interviews. I started doing other things. Yeah. I felt super refreshed it, after being around all those kids for optimism, that, that week. Optimism. Yeah. So I, I see it like that. Yeah. I see what you're saying. It and was, I, yeah. And I've done, you know, I've also performed at a bunch of the state level ones and they're, they're exactly the same. It's an amazing yeah. culture. It is a tribute also to the teachers mm-hmm. who have built it. You know, mm-hmm. you see the connection that the teachers there have with the subject material and with the kids and how they enable the kids to connect to it Mm -hmm. and feel inspired and and get it. And then, you know, it's not 
any secret that funding and education for humanities programs is rough right now. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of challenges, even at a high school level, with keeping some of the Latin programs open, but also especially at the college level with funding and positions for people to go into the field. So when I go into colleges and universities, I get a kind of ground level view of that. I'm sure I, you know, my presence there, I hope helps the department's to raise their profile and show that it can be interesting, you know, mm -hmm. classics can be interesting in a unique way with my performance. Mm -hmm. But sure, like professors talk to me all the time about how hard it is and the challenges they're facing and how it's hard to get to the substance of it, mm -hmm. the material with all this stuff going on around it. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe there's always been some of that, but it seems particularly acute right now. So Sidetrack mm, again. Yeah. Had anybody reach out to you for advice? Like, I really want to study Homer or I want to do music and I want to get involved in music and classics yeah. somehow. Like, have you had like anybody reach out to you? I'd say I get that after performances like after as, performances. as I talk to, yeah, especially with students who are creative as well as being into classics, mm -hmm. you know, which was kind of my thing. Mm -hmm. I only say that because yeah. some of the most rewarding conversations I've had are like, like emails like yeah. I get from yeah. like listeners who are like, I've listened to your podcast, yeah. I really like Greek history now, and I really think I'm going to go study classics or like I was studying classics, but like I really. I think I want to go further with it. Yeah. Being an inspiration, I felt like that way. So I was curious if you yeah. had any level, because obviously yours is different, but I'm also not a traditional academic path. Well, I left and now I do a podcast for the general public. So, and you, I don't know if you had hopes of pursuing. I decided not yeah. to. Well, no. I was in it and then I got out and then I decided to put it forward. Podcasting is not my profession. <laughs> it would take about as long as it did for you to make it a profession. Yeah, right. It would have its challenges. If I didn't right. have the student loans, maybe. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's a whole other yeah. You know, this ties back to the question, which is, I wish, I hope. I mean, there are a lot of battles to be fought around what classics means and what mm -hmm. it can mean and who's involved in it. Mm -hmm. And they're important and they mm -hmm. need to be. But my hope is if we can get through some of that, we can see that we're all we all should be part of the same ecosystem in mm -hmm, on sure. different ways. And I can't remember. I looked it up at one point. There's like 25,000 kids in JCL mm -hmm. nationwide, maybe more than that, maybe 35. You know, how can we convert more of those students into taking Greek and Latin classes in college to start? Like, mm -hmm. how can we take that enthusiasm and when they get to college, keep it going, make use of it, not necessarily even major in classics, but just participate in the study of classics mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at another level. Like, how about that? Just minor. Like, exactly. Yeah, or, or even just take yeah. the class, put yeah. a butt in the seat. You know, you asked about going to these colleges, like at many of them, you know, a Greek 101 class of eight people instead of four or seven people instead of four or it's six people. The difference people between the uh, existing and not. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, that's not to oversimplify it. And it's yeah. not that, that people aren't trying, you know, because clearly they are, but yeah. how can we help do that? Like, how can you take the people that you turn on to the material through your means? How can I take... What I do, how can all these people that you've talked to, that you're part of this community of, we're part of this community of people interacting with the material in new ways as we can now, <laughs> you know, how can we keep that in the family and all be a part of the same group mm -hmm. that is studying and, you know, excited about and relating to this discipline, this subject material? Mm -hmm. I think about that all the time. I hope I'm a little piece of it, yeah, you know? You're showing people that the traditional method is not necessarily... The only people to study classics don't have to be people who want to be professors of classics. Exactly. Yeah, it can that, suit anybody. That's exactly right. And, you know, but also I don't think it's like either or. It's yeah. like all of us. It's all of us. Yeah, what I do is not 
you know, what you do is not what a professor does at a college, a university in the traditional setting. It doesn't have to be. It's not, you're not saying you are. You know, the way I represent Homer or the way I think about it is not scholarship. It doesn't have to be. It's all, I liken it to the idea that every bard is entitled to their own telling of a story. Mm -hmm. We're all entitled to our own ways to interact with the material. And it's not, it's not either or. It's Mm -hmm. all of it goes together to form the meaning of it and to Mm -hmm. form the discipline. And I know it's not as simple as that too, not Pollyanna about how people monopolize it and what they use it for. But I would love to be a part of a discipline like that in whatever way possible, as I imagine you do too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things can have relevance when they don't necessarily, not necessarily going to be your your financial outcome. Right. Like things can impact your life. Right. Like I found out the podcast, I started out doing this just as a hobby for myself Yeah, right. because yeah. I had all this yeah. quote unquote useless information. Like I was not in a PhD program, I had all this just random information of notes and stuff. Non-commodifiable. And like, yeah. Like what am I going to do with this now? Yeah. Well, I spent all these years studying, at that point it was like six years or so, yeah. studying this stuff. I should put it towards a good use. And I started like editing Wikipedia articles and I right. finally started doing a podcast it was mainly for me, tangentially for other people. You didn't know that other people yeah, would listen. Yeah. Yeah. Or read, well, I we, We've talked about yeah. that now, like a lot of the people you've talked to, mm-hmm. like who are interacting with the discipline in different ways, start out exactly that same way. I didn't know that 17 years later, I'd still be singing this song. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I Did you wrote, think you'd sing to anybody other than your family or your high school? When, when I wrote it, I did not. Uh, it was more like I finished it and then I thought, who will sit still for this? Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, oh, family members and high school freshmen, you know. We still got your family members. I've gotten like one of 10 family members to listen to my podcast. <sighs> and it was only because I bribed him. With, uh, <laughs> he was playing Assassin's Creed Origins and he wanted to know some information. And I was like, You're like well, this one's got. I was like, if you go listen to that episode, yeah. I'll tell you your answer. That's funny. Uh, That's actually not funny. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually. No, but you know. It's interesting the difference in when you just make something for yourself because you're interested and when you're making it conscious that it's going to be mm-hmm. – like I assume it's changed the way in some extent you do your episodes or maybe not. It has in a sense. Like my methodology behind it hasn't changed because I'm – and you're probably the same too. I'm going to do what I'm comfortable with the way I'm comfortable you're with interested it because in the that's research. how yeah. I'm – because that's how it's for me right. mainly and secondary for other people. But I also know that I also take secondary into consideration now. Yeah, yeah. So like You're people, aware of your audience. Yeah. yeah. Like my methodology is what I do because I'm most comfortable with it. And right. it stays true to who I am. Right. I'm not going to change who I am to reach more people. Right. You're going to so say, like, if like, you like what I do, come yeah. listen. If you yeah. don't, go, if find, you don't, go it, find another podcast. Yeah. Not another one for the yeah. ancient Greece. So <laughs> there's a couple, yeah. but not like specifically what I do. Well, this is, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but, you know, it's interesting the ability of this source material we study to mm-hmm. generate strong responses from people. Like yeah. people have very strong opinions, some of them informed, some of them not mm-hmm. about this stuff. So when you take Most it on, well, <laughs> fair enough. When you <laughs> take it on, whether you're doing it in a more academic way that you're doing it, a more educational way, or an artistic way, you're going to piss some people off and they're going to have strong opinions about it. But that's because if you want to put a positive spin on it, it's because it matters to them. Like somewhere it matters to them. And whether that's a healthy place or unhealthy place, Mm -hmm. if it didn't matter in some way, they wouldn't care to respond Mm -hmm. to it. But people have very strong thoughts about the Odyssey and Homer. And that's from a (laughs) academic sense of people all the way down to people for whom it just you know, uh, I saw Troy fall of the city and how everybody got upset about that. Well, exactly. Right. I mean, come I on. Didn't, I didn't know so many people liked Homer until that came out. And it, well, 
again, I'm saying some people have their reasons more than others, right? But even just, you know, when you tell people I'm doing, when they see your interpretation of it, like they see mine, and they say, oh, I was kind of surprised you didn't do anything with X part of the story, you know, or don't you think you could have done this? Or what if you did this? Why didn't you do this? Yeah, which... That gets me to the whole, like, you don't really understand the point of it. Mythology in general, like Homer. There's not only one bard. Right. And that was the only way to do things. They were all different. Right. They all had different interpretations yeah. that were guided by their world experiences, yeah. by what they were interested in, like their individual the mechanics, yeah, yeah. their individual skills. Right. Yeah. So there is no one true way yeah. to do something. You try to tell that to some people. And like people are get upset, like, that's not how the myth goes. That's not how myth works. There yeah. is no one myth. No. No. <laughs> like we just happen to have this one Especially pre literate. Yeah. 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 And you know what? At some point you and this took me a long time to get to. This took me a, a large number of performances. Your version is is your version, and that's mm-hmm. that's the answer. Fine, you don't mm-hmm. like it, or you have you do it differently. Great, go don't do, do it. it. Go, <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean that like not at all in a glib way. Well, I sort of mean it in a glib way. Yeah, I definitely. But I mean it in I like I mean that like well, you know, you've talked to people like Jeff Wright who does the storytelling version, like a pure storytelling version of it. I wish there were. 40 bards all do going around telling these stories so we could actually have this discussion, you know? You know what would be great? We should get Jeff on it. You should play the music while he talks. See? A mashup? Is that a mashup? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That well, would be pretty well, no, epic. I mean, and, and, again, <laughs> and again, that's true to the idea yeah. of multiple bards, of yeah. multiple versions. Like, that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the more of that, the better. The more people who want to apply their specific vessel to telling yeah. the story great i mean we go through some of the similar things with that i think in a way it's like listening like to academic lectures on one-offs and it's like right. i know the story yeah but i'm listening to your specific take on something yeah, and right. i might pick out a few things that resonate with me yeah. and then move on right that's going back into the ancient audience and modern audience most people know the story right uh exactly they're just looking for a different per- not a necessarily a, yeah. yeah a different frame yeah not necessarily a different spin but just yeah. like kind of Okay, what's going to happen now? The like, how is, am I going to react hi, to this? I mean, history is a framed narrative anyway. Yeah. Subject to whoever's framing it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's yeah. no different than the Odyssey, yeah. like, in that sense. And they, you know, whatever. That could be a very long digression as well. But the biggest thing... I tenor had, like, a three-hour thing on that. Yeah. That, yes. With, uh, oh, with Joel. Joel. Yeah, yeah Joel his, double, his double. His double. Yeah, one. he did a pretty good one. So check that out. Yes. Uh, yeah. Tenor podcast I've, with Joel Christensen. Ch- check them all out, actually. Yeah, They're all great. That's another, to to get back to your question about going to all these colleges and universities, for all the problems in the field and the difficulties, there are people doing incredible work, both Mm -hmm. on an academic level and also on a interpersonal level, you know, with students and people who are interested. It, I get to experience that, you know, Mm -hmm. every trip I take, every college I go to, I get to talk to people who are on the ground, still working within that academic framework, who are doing the best they can and doing incredible things. I mean, they're working to preserve that part of the discipline, which mm-hmm. again, I think is important and should be. Mm-hmm. Whether it looks like it does now, that's another question. But it's all part of an ecosystem that's super important to the material. And there's, you, know, you mentioned Joel Christensen. And, and I mean, it's there are people, you know, fighting the good fight and doing mm-hmm. this work that are really important. And you just hope that they get enough support, <laughs> that they stay in the field, first of all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, second of all, that that they can bring more people into it with the tools that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the big things that I've noticed, I got into podcasting slightly late. I mean, earlier than a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, but I've been listening to podcasts since like 2008. Music, you might have a, a similar perspective, but I've seen that like 
before it was just like independent people like making history podcasts where people who might have gotten a master's but might have gotten a bachelor's but right. they decided not to pursue it and right. they amateurs with like knowing how to do historiography right and they would put together these podcasts at least the good ones there's yeah. terrible ones yeah i'm not gonna name names because i'm not smart we can do it off mic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like they're doing podcasts so i've seen this as an outsider with like one foot kind of in it because i was in a program i'm not this is a long-winded way of saying it i like that classics the field at least the people that I come across right. are getting more into the non-traditional ways. Yeah. Like you see more scholars doing podcasts. You see more scholars just doing, doing Twitter. Period. Yeah, outreach. I imagine it's now easier to get performances than it was sure a decade ago. Maybe not just because like well, now your name is known, but yeah, also because the tools. people are probably more willing oh, to than it was. I mean, I could be completely off no, no. That, that's that. so. I mean, the thing I like to point out, if you want to see how far this has come, is that when I started trying to book this thing in 2002, I was literally looking up schools in a phone book, like an actual <laughs> phone book, Chicago area high schools, and calling them. Mm-hmm. So, in addition to the field being more open to things like what you do and what I do, and all these you know newer media or newer ways to to, to reach people. The amount of information available to help me connect with those people mm-hmm. is incredible. I can go to a college website and see when they're teaching the Odyssey mm-hmm. <laughs> and who's teaching it and harass that person if I want. And I do. Mm-hmm. In fact, maybe somebody's listening to this has been harassed by me. <laughs> but that's something way different, like you said, than yeah. even 10 years ago. You know, I guess to sum up what I was saying a lot yeah. better than yeah. what I did yeah. while yeah. I did, it feels like when I was in uh, undergrad and classics, the discipline felt insulated. Okay. And now it it could be completely anecdotal and it could just yeah. be my experience, but now it feels like it's way more open and you have a lot of people doing the good stuff to try and yes. promote it beyond just the walls of the building. For whom the bell tolls. Uh, that I think is what I was also trying to say about going into all these places is <laughs> that- going around in circles, I did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just like Odysseus. It, uh, 10 years. When I have a lot of pride in, in that fact, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it does feel like there's a bit of a turning point or there's an opening up. I mean, even just watching- like what Emily Wilson does on Twitter with mm-hmm. her comparative translation is amazing. Like that mm-hmm. kind of scholarship, even if it's just in small bites, where could you have gotten that from that type of scholar for free yeah. <laughs> in, in real time, like before now? Like, God, I wish I had yeah. that. You know, I mean, I wish that was available to me when I was an undergrad. So for people to be open to that, participating and creating it, that makes me optimistic as well. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you. And it's not just like brand new PhD classicists who are like jumping on the train too. Like there's people from all walks and ages that are doing it. Of course, you have people who are completely against technology and like opening it up. I mean, I'm not in the field, so I don't know how big of a majority that still is, but I don't know. Eventually, they'll get phased out, you know, just because of time. (laughs) Also, I'm sure there are, you know, you you can't paint paint with a broad brush, as you're saying, you know, but there are enough people who are into the new ways to interact Mm -hmm. with it. I mean... Even just seeing on social media, professors posting the final projects from some of their students. It's just like, that is incredible. Like a graphic novel, like that is so cool. Mm -hmm. That is vibrant. That is alive. And the thing is, is creating something like that, I can tell you because I did it, you have to understand the material to do it. That is proof that you are diving into the material and taking it in. That's not just for show. That's not just, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do a creative project because it's easier than writing a paper. It's a different way of expressing your knowledge of the material, you know? I see so many professors, Scott for one, a bunch of them. I see so many professors who are like, final projects, kids are doing podcasts. And it's like, I can tell you how much work goes into a podcast. Yeah. So I do so many that like, I may just kind of brain dump when I go on to like next few episodes. But like in order to do a podcast, 
I spend like 50 to 100 hours per episode. Yeah. Like they are putting a lot of work yeah. into it. You yeah. know the material inside yeah. and out. Yeah. I don't know. It's just different. It's different. And not everybody is like, on board with that. No, no, no. I mean, like, not everybody learns the same way. Right. You're not just like, okay, we're going to read today. We're going to take a test on what we read. People are creative. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a little bit more strict, I suppose. Like, podcasting is creative, but I, I write everything out. Yeah. There's more just, of a component. It's now. more of like a, yeah, I have a learning style that is, I guess, not as, I would never be able to do a graphic novel or play music. I'm right, not, right. My brain doesn't work well, quite like that. But at the same time, it's like. It doesn't have to. Yeah, it doesn't you're, have to. You're, you're yeah. doing, you're inter- like I said, you're interacting with the material in the way you're filtering That's it through you. Best, yeah. yeah. And they all showcase different sides. Yeah. And it all fits together as one picture. Like, like how you relate best to the material. Exa- exactly. How you relate best to classics and how it can yeah. fit your life. And I mean, I know there's a big debate now about how much language, the languages need to be involved mm-hmm. in the field. I'm biased because I love Greek. <laughs> like, so I wish and hope that people would take Greek and get into yeah. it. But it's by no means the only way or, or, you know, I mean. You're not going to be an expert in it if you don't know Greek. But at the same time, the ultimate goal is not necessarily for everybody to be an expert. Like the ultimate goal is for people to to learn the material, to connect with the material. Like people can be classical civ majors, not know any of the languages. And that's fine because their ultimate goal is not to go to University X, get a PhD in University X and teach about University X. They just want to learn about the classical world and have it be part of that ecosystem and broaden their humanities study. Not everybody has the same ultimate goal. There's a different path to get to different houses. Well, and the thing is, is like, I'd be lying if I didn't say every once in a while I'm jealous of the people who stayed in and are in the academy, Mm -hmm. you know, like, because I see the research they're doing into the stuff that I was interested in. And I think, gosh, if I had stayed in and done this, this is... You know, of course, I only see the cool part of it, but wow, that would be that 10 would, years to get a job or not. <laughs> but I mean, like, I'd be lying if I didn't every once in a while being around it go, gosh, I wish I could. I wish my Greek was still good. Um, you oh, know, yeah. I would so like, like reading, you know, some more scholarly material and just being fascinated by it all over again and just thinking, wow, wouldn't it be incredible to be able to research into something in this way, in the way that the academy allows you to mm-hmm. and gives you access to. Again, setting aside all the other stuff that they have to go through. But, you know, my value to the material, what I bring to it, what I bring to the field such as I do, this is a better use of my talents, yeah. <laughs> for sure. This is a better use of my personality, my interest level. If I'm taking a step back, like, I'm not saying this from a perspective of being an egoist, but there aren't a lot of people that can bring both the music side and the classics side mm-hmm. to, to what I do, the way I do it. Are there people that could do it better? Probably. But this is my own lane. This is a lane that I have available to me and I should make use of it in the sense that I can turn people onto the material in a way that other people can't. That's awesome. What more can you ask for? <laughs> you yeah. Know? I mean, like, are there people who can play music better? Probably. No, there people, I'm great at that. No, <laughs> are there people who know the Odyssey better? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, right. Are there people who are better writers? Maybe. Probably. But can everybody do all three yeah, yeah. together? I don't know anybody else. I, let's talk about me now. Um, no. <laughs> no, I have a, a generally standing gig that I do at this summer program called the Missouri Scholars Academy, mm-hmm. which is a high school camp that's run down in Mizzou, Columbia. I'm not doing it this summer, but I've done it like four or five summers. And um, I have a friend who's part of it, who I've become friends with through it. He's a Latin teacher, Mm -hmm. or was. And he introduces me down there every year to these kids. And they're really bright sophomore kids who basically go on campus there and they get three or four weeks of a college experience at the age of 15, like all sorts of classes. 
And his standard introduction to me is always, you might expect him to be either a terrible musician or a terrible classicist. And he's actually pretty good at both of them. <laughs> I'm like, cool. That's awesome. Put that on my tombstone. You know, a decent musician and classicist. That's great. Not it, terrible at anything. Not terrible. <laughs> not deficient at either one. Well, to take it back to the discussion about what you do, what I do, what these other people that we've, we're kind of a community with in some sense do, you know, being a, somebody who is part of the classics ecosystem and, and trying to help people get into it and give them windows can look like anything. You don't have to look like a certain, you know, you have to have a work ethic and you have to dive into the material and learn how to present it the way you've done or the way I've done. But you can be anything. You can be anybody and do it in a way that has value. And yeah, it's not this, but it's it's your thing. And you're, you know the work that goes into it and you know the level which you research it. And I know the level which I think I know the source material very intimately and can talk about it at which I think my performance does certain things in the tradition better than the text or better than, you know, studying it. We can look like whatever we want, you know, that's the freedom. <laughs> we should. That's a commercial for us. <laughs> so you don't just do the Odyssey. You actually make other music. Have you found that your performance of the Odyssey has impacted or improved your overall as a musician or vice versa? Yeah. Like how does that interact? How do they interact? You must be unique amongst musicians that yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's interesting because it's done it in a couple different ways. First of all, it gave me a business model to be a successful musician <laughs> in that when I realized part of what made me able to incorporate the odyssey as part of my music career was that i could do it with just an acoustic guitar and my voice and i didn't need a band and i didn't need really any administrative support or or management i think we failed to mention that earlier that your performances are just you yes, singing they're with, just an, me. with an acoustic yeah. guitar oftentimes without a microphone even just yeah. when i can it's more impressive than it sounds yeah <laughs> <laughs> thank you no yeah. i mean the way you're describing oh, not oh, the way it oh, sounds oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah the way you're describing yourself with just a your right. voice and a right guitar right you play upon the acoustics very well yes yes i try to so i realized part of what made it self-sustaining and, and the fact that it was contributing to my career was that there was very little overhead and that mm -hmm. sounds like a weird word to use mm -hmm. but you know if you tour with a band it's at least three, four people. It's a van. It's a lot, even to just take a band on the road. When I travel by myself to do the Odyssey, it's just me. So I can be successful with it in a career level way easier than with a band. I worked with a band for a bunch of years, but as I saw this Odyssey start to take off, I thought, well, I think I need to start trying to use this as my model for how I can be a successful musician. I'd love to be in a band still. I'd love to work with a band. I love music made by a band. But I don't think it's financially possible for me to do that and be successful. So I started writing more music that I thought I could represent in the same way that I was doing the Odyssey. By myself, one guitar, easy to take on the road. Like a bard. Yeah, exactly. And it also became much more narrative as well. Mm -hmm. I did a whole series of records from 2015 to 17 called the Record of series. Record of Life, uh, Record of Loss, and Record of Love. And those are... I've heard the record of yes. loss. I should probably listen to more of your music. I'm a terrible friend. No, yes, but <laughs> you're not a terrible friend. I have heard that, yeah. that album. And what I tried to do with it was do some of the same type of storytelling or maybe even more than what I did with mm -hmm. the Odyssey in song. They're very narrative. They're very personal stories that I think can apply to people uh, universally. And the work I did with the Odyssey was very enlightening to me and gave me the confidence to go out and try to do that in that way. So it, the Odyssey stuff has had a big profound effect on me beyond just the work around mm -hmm. the Odyssey. 
Yeah, and I guess that sums up both artistically and kind of in a business sphere, how it's helped me. The music business is weird because it might be the one business that's worse than the classics business. And that's a pitch for people who are like, classics is irrelevant. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, if you have a passion for classics and yeah. it's what you like, yeah. you can always find a way to incorporate it that's into it. what you're actually doing. That's exactly doing. right. I Even if it's just a way of thinking yeah, exactly. or a, just a way of like taking lessons learned. It doesn't necessarily have to be something. It's uh, not limited to yeah, just Yeah, it's not limited to so how much money that, you can make from it. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I would not still be doing a full-time musician thing today if it weren't for the Odyssey. That's been the single most successful thing I've done for myself. It's a unique thing. It's shown me the way to be a professional bard slash musician in, mm-hmm. in the 21st century. And I feel lucky every time I do it to have it. And it's been amazing to me. So you've been in how many states so far? As of today, 38. And you have a goal of getting into the 50s? I do. What states you have left? uh, I'm glad you asked, Brian. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, I'll be be playing in North Dakota this summer at the Junior Classical Convention, Mm -hmm. which is convenient for me because that's a tough one. Uh, And after that, I have New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, Oklahoma, Kansas, Maryland, West Virginia, Oregon, Hawaii, Alaska. Those are your 11? Those are my 11. I think I just said 11, right? So if we have any listeners from those states yeah. who are in, like teaching Latin or Greek in high school or, or just anywhere, <laughs> yeah, or collegiate classes or have connections, yeah. reach out to him. I, I, and where can they find you? At? They can find me uh, at joesodyssey.com. And there's an email address on there, but it's just joe at joesodyssey.com. And you can find my other music yeah. at joegoodkin.com as well i'll all that in the show notes as well awesome. so and on the web page and also a link to you wrote a piece on idolin as well so I'll, yeah. I'll link to that as well that talks about being a modern bard so yeah that's all i have thank you for hosting me this wonderful trip to see the cubs lose to the phillies <laughs> well <laughs> but, uh, i'm practicing zania and no matter the outcome of the game tonight you'll probably be welcome here <laughs> and welcome anytime and thank you for having me on to talk about yeah. this like i said it's awesome to see what you're doing with the material and to see this kind of virtual community that we have of people who are trying to be a part of it and move it forward and bring more people in. It's really encouraging and it's fairly new and I hope it, it continues to grow and you keep have, having success with it. I appreciate the kind words and I'm glad you yeah. were able to come on. Yeah, go Cubs. <laughs> <laughs>